As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching, thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. We can understand how our universe came to be as one of these sort of drops inside an, a, a rapidly expanding universe. But generally, if that's true, there are other universes out there that could be quite different that we'll never know about because the space between us and them is expanding. Lawrence Krauss is a theoretical physicist and cosmologist. He's focused on issues ranging from the Big Bang to particles. In one of his cosmological papers, Krauss discusses dark energy as a quintessence field. If you think dark energy simply drives the universe's expansion, Krauss's work argues for a more dynamic role of this mysterious force. He's also investigating the puzzling question of why is there more matter than antimatter, or why is there more antimatter than matter, it's the same question. And by doing so offers insights into CP violation, we explore that in this podcast. Often it's assumed that both should be produced in equal amounts at the Big Bang, however this is clearly not the case since we're here. Why this discrepancy? In other words, why are we here? How is this even possible? We also touch on Freeman Dyson's thought experiments about gravity and how we can live forever. Also, while neutrinos are often relegated to the role of elusive particles in standard physics curricula, Krauss sees them at the heart of several cosmic processes. We talk about why this is. My name is Kurt Jaimungal, and I have a background in mathematical physics, and I use that to analyze the various theories of everything that are out there, like string theory, like Wolfram's, like what's coming up is Peter White's Euclidean twister unification. But I also explore consciousness and its role in fundamental law. Due to an ineluctable storm converging on Krauss's location, this interview will be more concise than usual, and we're super keen to expand on it in future episodes. If you have questions for Lawrence Krauss, then leave them below in the format query by writing the word query with a colon, and then your question. This way, when I speak to Krauss again for part two, all I have to do is look through the comments, search the word query, and then ask your question, citing you either in the description or orally in the episode itself. Enjoy this podcast with Lawrence Krauss. Professor, welcome to Theories of Everything. It's an honor to have you. How are you doing? It's an honor to be here. I'm doing fine. It's an honor to be here. Actually, Great. actually, it's a little tense here. I was just outside preparing for a hurricane um, oh. that's going to come by here. And so just getting the boat out of the water. And and if you uh, if you look, my Zoom will follow me. Anyway, there's water back there. And uh, um, and anyway, so it's so yeah. So other but so far, the weather's fine right now. So that's good. We'll make it a short and sweet podcast, and if you as an audience member have questions for a part two, then leave them in the comment section below, because Professor has to go and prep. I've been reading your book. It's a fantastic book. 
And Thanks. in particular, see the subtitle. It says Unsolved Mysteries of the Cosmos. I think that's particularly apt because there's this series that I love called Unsolved Mysteries. And this is uh-huh. like the physics version of that. Well, I think it's always, I'm, I'm glad you like it. And, I, and one of the reasons the title is there because because mysteries are exciting. Uh, most Some people are afraid of mysteries, but mysteries should be an invitation to everyone. And, uh, and, and so, uh, you know, unsolved mysteries are really exciting because it's an invitation to everyone to think about how to solve them. Yeah, so what does this process of refinement look like for the chapters? Because there are various unsolved problems in physics. Well, you know, what I wanted to do, look, I, I've written a lot of books, and I wanted this in some ways to be a nice follow-up book. Um, and uh, uh, to by, you know, I, my, the book I wrote, A Universe from Nothing, was, was sort of at the forefront of cosmology. And then, and then I wrote a book afterwards called The Greatest Story Ever Told So Far, which brought people up to date about the, the development of what is by far the best scientific theory ever developed by human beings, the standard model of particle physics. But I think the, the next step is to see what the, what, where, where we're heading in these fields. And to know where we're heading, it's good to know what we know we don't know. In fact, in, in England, the title of the book is called The Known Unknowns for that reason. Which is what you wanted. Yeah, it, and so it, it, it allowed me to take those forefront issues, which I know are pushing modern, modern physics and, and also beyond physics, and, and those are the areas. And, of course, the forefront is just at the edge of knowledge, literally. It's where we, we, where we, there are questions we have, but we don't know the answers. And I think that's the most exciting thing for people, and I, and I think I wrote at the end of the book, for a young person, um, I, when I was young, I read a book that got me excited about physics to realize the questions weren't all answered. Mm-hmm. And, and so I tried to focus on the, the most exciting questions and the neat thing about it. The thing that made it particularly attractive is that those questions are the same questions that we all have about the universe. You know, how did the universe begin? How will it end? Are, are we alone in the universe? How did life begin? These are the forefront questions of science, but they're the questions that in one way or another, everyone asks themselves. And it seemed a lovely way to touch, to, to tap into that common interest. The questions, how will the universe begin? How will it end? You know, how did life originate? Are we alone in the universe? You know, when I see green is the same green as you see, what's consciousness? Uh, uh, those fundamental questions are really the things that are driving science. And it's kind of satisfying that they are the same ones that interest people. Yeah. So I always, in my books, try to think of ways to get people to in, interested, to more interested than they are, to encourage them to yeah. to uh, ask questions and that's really the big point and and a book about questions which is really what this is is really a book about learning because learning should be done by asking questions do you find that when you write books it helps you clarify your own thinking of course no it it always does i mean that's one of the reasons i write books that's one of the reasons why i write books uh because well there are two reasons well three reasons one because i want to repay the favor when i was younger it was books about science that got me interested in in, in being a scientist, and it's nice to return that favor. But also, um, when I when I write books, I you could write the same book over and over again. I know a lot of people who've done that. Mm-hmm, I won't mention mm-hmm. names, yeah, sure. But in each book, I try and tackle you know things I'm aware of, but try and push those ba- my own boundaries. So because so it becomes a learning process mm. for me as well, and so it's a combination. Writing a book allows me to study a topic that I might not have the discipline to study otherwise if I don't mm-hmm. know it. And if I do think I know it, it allows me to explain it. And many, many times, 
as you say, I've, I realize I understand things more than I did. And, and, or, or, or in a different context, even like, for example, the chapter on consciousness, I had ideas about, uh, and, and biases about my, about, about the nature of understanding consciousness. And I found, and, and, but this forced me to delve into those ideas more carefully and try and even define what consciousness was, which is, which is not the case. Another example is the origin of life. I, I led through my through the institute I ran at a university meetings a decade or two ago on the origin of life, and this allowed me to say, well, okay, I, I understand what those issues are, but what's been happening since then, and what are the key th- things that are that are being understood? Uh, I mean, long ago, I in, in I remember in 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 the first book I ever wrote, which is about dark matter, I was writing about particles called axions. And I was writing about symmetries of nature. And I realized in the context of axions and these symmetries that there was an experiment that showed, that gave strong constraints on one symmetry of nature. But I realized in the process of writing it that I absolutely didn't understand it. And Uh and I thought I did. I I understood what was needed to know. But when I tried to explain it, I realized, hey, there's problems. Now that I think about it, is that really right? And that that happens to me in every book I write, and it's fun. It's it's fun, but it's also fun to learn stuff. And and so I, you know, they're not all books on totally new topics. So I wrote a book on the physics of climate change, which again I've been tutored and over the years, especially as chairman of the board of sponsors of the Bolton Atomic Scientists for a decade. But but to go into the detailed history and understanding of climate science, that was a new area. It was also the beginning of the pandemic, so I had nothing else to do. So so I was able to do it. But in, and in this book, because it's very broad, it's really all of science, time, mm-hmm. space, matter, life, consciousness. Um, there are obviously areas where I knew I'd I'd want to really read up. And again, the consciousness chapter probably was your favorite. Probably required the most. Well, I don't know. If it's my favorite. No, it was the hardest, which is one of the reasons why I left it to the end. But it was the one where I had to read the most, right? Because it was an area where I had a vague understanding, and I'd run some meetings. Also on nature, uh, on aspects of consciousness, but to really go into it enough to try and say what are the open questions, or 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 to reinforce or invalidate my my a priori bias that we don't understand consciousness, uh, I had to really try and see what explanations people gave for consciousness. Are there any interesting older sources that you looked at for? Any of your chapters, let's say the life and the consciousness one. Well, I mean, I looked at older sources. If you, uh, what I like about the first chapter, which is on time, is I go back to uh, to uh, 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 black holes and and I talk about uh, uh, this guy Michel, who was a who was a unsung hero of science a hundred years after Newton, who re- really was the first person to come up with the idea of black holes. It was fun to research his own. You learn about him. It's a, there are some amazing scientists really are unsung and in the modern world they'd be at the very top but but they've sort of disappeared in the dustbin of history i guess in one way or another and um and then and then same with you know um well, with consciousness going back to the early people who looked at consciousness uh uh the early the early uh the first neuroscientists and psychologists looking at their work and seeing how much or little had changed since then um you know and 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 of course, when it comes to the origin of life, that's an area where there's been a huge number of developments. The origin of life has to be distinguished, as I tried to explain in the chapter first, from the origin of the diversity of life. That's, you know, evolution, which is, uh, well, there are open questions with evolution. That's an area of science that's well-trodden. But to go back to determine how biology, how chemistry turned into biology, 
is right at the forefront. But but we have to start thinking about the early stages of of the discovery of DNA and how did such a complex molecule arise? And then it was an amazing discovery, of course, of actually an old colleague of mine when I taught at Yale. He was my dean, and I and I you know I, I still don't have a great opinion of deans, but he was a good guy. But I never realized he was a great scientist till after he stepped down and being dean, and he won the Nobel Prize. For, for, and I realized his work on RNA was essential. It showed that the a precursor world to a DNA world could have been an RNA world, and um, yeah. and and so um, it, uh, it it's it's you know it's fun to go back and 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 see the development of ideas. And I think that's another thing about writing about science. In some ways, it's storytelling. It's not all storytelling, but I think people right. appreciate a story and the human interest aspect of a story. How the red herrings or how we how we got to where we go is a is something that's interesting and worthwhile talking about. We don't often always talk about it in, in lecture courses, but I think in books it's fun to do that. Yeah, well, in books it seems necessary because you have to open a chapter with something that's human and relatable to the general public. Well, I think you do. Yeah, or statistics to the scientist. It's like that's what we find interesting. Well, exactly. But you know, people are interested in things they don't know they're interested in, and I think the key point is to convince them they're interested in things. I often tell teachers that the biggest mistake they make is assuming their students are interested in what they have to say. Mm. You have to convince them to be interested. So you have to go to where they are and try and reach out and, and grab them and say, this is interesting. And then, people, you know, it's like many people are afraid of science, but they don't realize they're interested in it. When you talk about warp drive or, or time machines, they suddenly get interested and they, they don't realize it's kind of forefront science. Yeah. Tim Maudlin was saying that his favorite parts of most physics courses, most science courses in general, are the first lectures because they're selling you on the course. So he's like, when I went to quantum field theory, they told me about this is the most impactful theory in science. And then lecture three is on Green's functions. He's like, well, what happened to studying what is? And when you ask what is, they're like, oh, that's philosophy, actually. Don't even ask that here. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, there's a lot. Well, quantum field theory has certainly always been and probably, well, I don't know if it remains, but it's always been the most challenging class to teach in graduate school or to take. And there's just a lot of stuff and a lot of intellectual baggage that you need to do. And you can't, and and before you can, philosophy is useful for framing initial questions in the world, but, but physics has long gone beyond those initial questions so that it's driven by questions that are often math, quite mathematical in nature. And, and, and people don't realize that, that um, you, you can't just sort of start with those questions and expect to reach anything without going through the remarkable baggage that's been developed. And that has taken you far away from the questions. So, you know, what is, is a, is a, is a fancy question, but it actually, as I talked about in universe or nothing, that the whole concept of something and nothing has changed dramatically because of physics and people don't like that, but I don't care. It's the way it is. It's called learning. And we now realize as, as a fact, matter of fact, because of quantum field theory, that the difference between something and nothing is not so great as imagined before because nothing has lots of something in it yeah <laughs> let's speak about that for a moment when i was younger i remember questioning the universe and i couldn't figure out how anything could come from nothing and that was something that i had asked my brother who was studying physics at the time and then he mentioned quantum fluctuations and i was eight or so and then it was approximately at that point that i became an arrogant and inexorable atheist wow your brother your brother did god's work as we say Go yeah on. <laughs> I realized years later that's not an explanation to say vacuum sure, fluctuation. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. But I didn't know that at the time. So because I didn't know, I thought that that was an explanation. However, you have now 
figured out some way of making that indeed an explanation. So can you cover that, please? How you get something from nothing, you mean? How the universe can come about from vacuum fluctuations. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I can give you a summary. As I say, I wrote a whole book about it, so it's kind of... But um, look, the key part about... The key aspect of quantum mechanics, which I do talk about in the new book, is that is that is that the quantum universe is very... Many things are happening at the same time. And in particular, quantum fluctuations are happening all the time. We can't see them, but quantum systems are constantly fluctuating. And... Um, and when you combine quantum mechanics and relativity, it's even more exciting because it says uh, that um, that empty space isn't empty. Uh, so the key thing about quantum mechanics, when you combine it with relativity, and I've described this in a number of my books, it implies that empty space isn't empty. It, it may, I mean, it has mm-hmm. no real particles, but it, over time scales that are so short that you can't measure them directly and this is the uncertainty principle of quantum mechanics, things can happen that you can't see. And in particular, particles can pop into existence that weren't there before and then pop out of existence on a time scale so short that you can't even see them. Those are called Mm -hmm. virtual particles. It may sound like counting angels on the head of a pin if you say, well, these particles are there, but you can't see them. Well, we can't see them directly, but what we can do is see their effects indirectly. We know they're there because we have an impact on the on the atomic energy levels of atoms. They allow us to calculate the atomic energy levels of atoms with an accuracy that's unprecedented in all of science. So we know we have to include the fact that on small scales and small times, particles are popping in and out of existence. It's just it's quantum quantum fluctuations in quantum fields. That's why quantum field theory is relevant. Allow you to produce particles that appear and then disappear. Fine. Well, that's that's for normal quantum field theory with particles and in, in, in space and time. But gravity is a theory of space and time. And so if gravity is a quantum theory, if gravity is a quantum theory, and that's a big if, we yes. don't know for certain, but we have no reason to suspect it isn't, then the variables of that theory, space and time, become quantum mechanical variables. Mm-hmm. And then space and time can fluctuate. And you can start literally with no space, no time, and then have a little universe with space and time appear and then disappear. Virtual universes can pop in and out of existence. Mm-hmm. And in quantum gravity, that kind of phenomena happens. But it, hap- it can happen that if, that if a, a virtual universe pops into existence um, with zero total energy, then the laws of quantum mechanics and relativity say that that virtual universe, in fact, can be real. It can exist for an arbitrarily long, long time. And and then, in order for it to not collapse again, if it's if it say starts expanding and not collapses, certain processes have to happen. But if you asked, what would a universe that lit was almost fourteen billion years old, that spontaneously arose from nothing by quantum mechanical processes, what would it look like today? And the answer is, it would look just like the universe we live in. All the properties would be the properties of the universe we live in. Now that doesn't prove that that happened. Yeah, but it's tell- it's strongly suggestive that that possibility could explain the existence of our universe. Now it's all possibilities right now because because we don't have a quantum theory of gravity. I said if space and time, if we have a quantum, if gravity is a quantum theory, and it's a big if, we don't have a theory of quantum gravity. We may, you know, string theory is a good candidate for that, but no one knows if it is a theory of quantum gravity in our universe, and so 
that's an open question at the forefront of physics, one of the known unknowns, if you wish. And what's the name of that theory? What you just outlined, which is, okay, look, if you have fluctuating quantum fields and you were to combine general relativity, you have fluctuating space-time itself, universes yeah. can... Then, it's just a proposal, a vague proposal, like, or is there a well, name it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a pro- No, I know there's no names attached to it. I propose it. Other people have proposed it. But it's just a consequence, if you wish, of... of 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 having a quantum theory of gravity and lots of people have thought about it hawking and hartle and uh, uh and you know stephen hawking's obviously thought about it a lot i have other people have but it's right now a, a plausible idea but it's not yet a, a, a complete theory because we do not have a full th- theory of quantum gravity time that i have to speak with you i want to ask you a bit about dyson your conversations with dyson which you talked about dyson was thinking extremely theoretically, like, what could it be? What could it be? Not just for us to live forever, but for a possible being to live forever. What would that mean? Is it possible? And he came up with a solution that has to do with, well, if a conscious being had an infinite amount of cycles, that's akin to it living forever. Now, I don't know if he has to assume a continuous amount that you can divide space or that you can divide time to, but regardless, you'll speak about that. You know, he, he came up with very interesting proposals for how, the, how, how, a, how a, a, a hypothetical species could do that. We had wonderful debates. Yeah, please outline that, and then please outline what your objections were and what that looked like with him retorting and what were his retorts. <laughs> it, was, it was fun. It was, you know, those kind of conversations are fun in science going back and forth. Well, look, he had argued in a typical Dysonian way which says, forget what's practical, but in principle, is it possible for a civilization to live forever? Yes, I'll define it as if it has an infinite number of thoughts. If it has an infinite number of thoughts, then that civilization has survived forever. And then he said, well, how could you have an infinite number of thoughts? Because, you, you know, you, you think when we're thinking, it takes energy, 10 to 20 watts in our brain, which is not a lot, but enough. Um, so, so clearly, you'd think it would take an infinite amount of energy to have an infinite number of thoughts but um but and if you we only have fi- access to a finite amount of energy then we can't do that but then he pointed out that if you you know you can have inf- inf- infinite series that converge to a finite number the greeks discovered that and um uh zeno's paradox mm-hmm. uh, for those who know of it um or at least we now know a solution to zeno's paradox i'm not sure the greeks exactly figured it out but in any case um and so he he argued that if that one way to have an infinite number of thoughts would basically be wake up, um, have a thought, then go to sleep, where you're not using any energy basically, if you could imagine such a thing, and then and then wake up a little bit longer later and have a thought, and then sleep, and then sleep longer and sleep a greater. It sounds like the ideal life. Yeah, exactly. At greater and greater fraction of the age of the universe, you sleep each time, so you're sleeping for longer periods, and. During that time, each time you think you use less energy, and you could, and anyway, he could show, he showed you could accessing finite energy, have an infinite number of thoughts. And that, that sounds good. Um, the problem is briefly, before you get to the problem, why is that so remarkable? Because, like you mentioned, we've known about infinite series that converge for quite some time now. So, why did it take Dyson to come up with that? What did he contribute to it that was different, that was subtle? Um, well, I think. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. 
Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience by using aerospace-grade CNC machines. Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson razor works with the standard dual edge blades that give you that old school shave with the benefits of this new school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. His, his realization that his, well, you see, the point is that because we think in terms of metabolism, the, the the standard wisdom was that you know a, a, a non-zero metabolism will therefore require infinite energy access over over infinite time to in order to continue because it's always and I think his his the cuteness of his example was imagining a system that could basically turn itself off ah. and 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 be and and really have a life that's many people would not say well I, if you get old it sounds nice but a life mm. where you're sleeping more and more and more and more, <laughs> which most people don't think of as a, as a vital civilization. So I think it was his rec- his recognition that that in an expanding universe, you have to you have to do the equations right. The free energy that you use, the integral of that could be finite, even though even though uh, the, 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 it, there are an infinite number of wake up periods. It wasn't at all obvious that you could get it to converge. Um, and so I think it was a combination of that and realizing that, you know, you, if, if there's such a system uh, could turn itself off, um, then you, then you, the, then you, uh, uh, um, then you could in principle do that. But the problem, there's lots of problems there. Immediately quantum mechanics comes into a problem because quantum fluctuations are such, it's kind of hard for a system to use zero energy okay. at all. Yeah. But also how do you wake up? It was one example. I mean, mm-hmm. so you want to wake up, but then you have to have an alarm clock. Well, how do you have an alarm clock that has an infinite number of wake ups that doesn't that doesn't that uses less energy? And then we'd come up, we showed him, hey, they in, the alarm clock is going to use an infinite amount of energy. They said no. He came up with an orbiting planet scheme, which was really tricky for uh. orbiting planets that eventually, or not planets, but orbiting particles when they collide, the alarm clock goes off, and it doesn't take any energy to orbit a planet. And um, and then we point out eventually the laws of quantum mechanics. Will will get you there as well because the uncertainty principle means you can't at some very basic level you can't uh, fix exactly the momentum of of two particles and 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 eventually you know you can't fix it well enough you can fix it to some certain level of accuracy but if you want them to orbit each other for ten trillion years before they collide um, then the uncertainty in their momentum is such that every now and then they're going to miss each other and you'll sleep forever and there are little things like that. And any and, and anyway, and then the final his final argument was a black cloud, uh, like that of of um, of the black cloud of um, oh, what's his name the um, the father of the big bang. Well, the, uh, sort of the sure. Father. Well, some conscious being that doesn't resemble. No, no, us. but the black cloud. It's a great story. It's probably the best best science fiction story ever written. 
it involved a, a discovery of a cloud, and it was realized that the motion of the particles in the cloud encoded intelligence. And he argued that that cloud could slowly expand, and it, you know you could imagine it would live forever. But in fact, ultimately, and we went back and forth. But ultimately, and this was before we knew we were having that debate before we knew that the expansion of the universe was was mm-hmm. speeding up. Mm-hmm. Something I actually proposed in, uh, a few years later, uh, and um, and then it was discovered to be true. But we both recognize that if the expansion of the universe was speeding up, then his arguments about um, uh, would fall by the wayside. There's no way life can exist forever in a universe that's accelerating like we have. And so we both we it was it was even though we agreed to disagree about what happened in other cases. We agreed about that case. And since that appears to be the case for our universe, it looks like um, uh, it's not good news for the, for the future, long-term future of life. As I like to say, the future is miserable. Mm. But it's going to be a while before it's, uh, b- it's going to get too miserable. Trillions of years. And with Dyson, I sent a YouTube video. It's been a while since I've seen it, but he was saying that gravitons aren't detectable. He had some in Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. In fact, actually, he said that. And then I actually, and, and actually I was in a meeting with him. When he argued that that uh, he gave a great argument for how all the experiments that are you could detect a graviton directly wouldn't work, and I'm I'm not sure all of his arguments are exactly right, but but it's, it was a brilliant, like typical Dysonian paper. It was what could you do in principle to do this, and in in every case showing a real trick for why it wouldn't work. But in fact, but in fact, what I I I talked at that meeting, and he. He agreed with me ultimately, but I showed him that no experiment we can do on Earth will detect gravitons, but the universe as an experiment can detect gravitons because the universe can do things we can't do, like ultimately have regions that are expanding farther, faster than light away from each other. And I showed him that this process of inflation in the early universe uh, would produce gravitational waves, but only which we can measure today, but only if gravity was a quantum theory, in which case, in which case there would be gravitons. Mm-hmm. So the universe could be a, if we detect gravitational waves from the expanding universe, which we haven't done yet, we've just detected expand gravitational waves from black holes that are colliding, but we haven't detected gravitational waves from the big bang mm-hmm. or this period called inflation. If we could do that, those gravitational waves would be generated if, and only if at a very fundamental scales, gravitons were being created. Mm-hmm. and destroyed and so we could use the universe as a way to prove that gravity is a quantum theory if we were able to able to detect gravitational waves from inflation it would imply that gravitons exist and so it'd be an indirect way you wouldn't direct directly detect them but the universe in that sense would be a graviton detector you'd see just like when i a geiger counter detects a radioactive decay but i don't see the radioactive decay what i hear is a click that's been turned into a classical thing i can hear well in some sense gravitational waves from the early universe would be like the click of the Geiger counter. If I saw them, it would be the classical um, manifestation of a quantum phenomenon that happened at the beginning of time. You also mentioned in your book about inflation that there are various inflationary models and that some of them can be used to indirectly have evidence for multiverses. Okay, so let's explain that. What's meant by that there are various models because the way that it's told to the public is like, oh, well, the universe expanded. Okay, so it's as if there's one inflation theory. Well, there's an idea. Inflation is an idea more than a theory. You can show that under under certain conditions, the universe will expand very fast at early times. It's almost generic. 
The hard part is to get it to stop it from expanding very fast, because if it didn't stop expanding very fast, life couldn't form. Exactly how you do that is the context to a model. So you, put, you embed that idea in, in a mathematical model of how the universe is evolving. And there are different models, and none of them are very pretty, to tell you the truth right now. I suspect there's things we're missing. But almost all of those models for how you stop expanding very, very fast imply that there are actually other universes because what really happens is there's, there doesn't seem to be any way to globally stop the universe from expanding very fast. But what you have are sort of like, like little drops or snowflakes. You have the background universe is expanding very, very fast, but within that within a small region... There's a phase transition, like a snowflake forming or a raindrop forming out of vapor. Mm -hmm. And in that region, you decouple from that background ex fast expansion, and you have a hot big bang. Okay? And, but that means most of the rest of, the, of this space is still expanding. It's somewhere else. You decouple and have a hot big bang. But it turns out you can decouple from that expansion. You can have a phase transition in many different ways, just like you can create snowflakes that have many different shapes, right? And each different way you you decouple from that background expansion can result in different laws of physics. Mm -hmm. And so what, what inflation generically says is, yes, we can understand how our universe came to be as one of these sort of drops inside an, a, a rapidly expanding universe. But generally, if that's true, there are other universes out there that could be quite different that we'll never know about because the space between us and them is expanding so fast we'll never know about it. That's the multiverse. And moreover, since it goes on infinitely long, you'll eventually get to create an infinite number of, of, of such other universes, okay? Yeah. Now, we'll never direct detect those other universes. So people say that's kind of science fiction or religion or something. But if we could detect, say, gravitational waves from inflation, then we'd be able to probe the exact model of inflation, the characteristic of the of, of how we decoupled from that big that background expansion and we'd be able to tell which which model if any of inflation was right and probe its theories and and once we did that we'd know if that model predicted a multiverse so we'd know we'd know indirectly that there are other that there are other universes because we'd probe the model and say yeah that's what happened but in, if that happened there have to be other universes out there so it's an indirect detection. Just the way in 1905 we knew atoms existed, but there's no one ever figured there'd be a way to see them directly. We always detected their effects indirectly. We can now more or less see them with, with fancy kinds of electron microscopes and other things. But all the evidence for atoms, we believed atoms existed w shortly after 1905 because it, it explained everything we saw, even though we never thought we'd see one directly. And it's, that's the way it'll be with a multiverse. We'll never detect those other universes. But if we have a theory and we can test it very, very well, let's say we had a theory of inflation that we could test very well, then we'd, and it made 50 predictions and you tested all those 50 predictions and they were correct. Well, the 51st prediction that you couldn't test, you'd, you'd have strong reason to indirectly believe was, was, was correct. And are we currently looking for these primordial gravitational waves? Yes, well, we did. We're looking in different ways. Yeah, we thought we discovered them uh, ten years ago, or maybe eight years ago, something ten years ago, close to. Um, we, we're looking at looking at ripples in the cosmic microwave background radiation, the radiation from the Big Bang. These gravitational waves would leave a signature that's very hard to detect. And then I think it was 2015 or somewhere around then, maybe a little later. Um, 
to a group of experimentalists thought they detected. In fact, it was kind of sad because they detected precisely what they thought the signal of such primordial gravitational waves would be with an amount as large as was allowed by other constraints. But it turned out that they were they were fooled. It was turned out that dust in our galaxy produced the signal that they thought they saw. It doesn't mean that, you know, what it did, right. I shouldn't say it that way. It turns out that dust in our galaxy could produce a signal that was as large as what they saw. It doesn't mean that there wasn't a real signal embedded in that, but because extraordinary claim, claims require extraordinary evidence, um, the simplest thing to assume is that, well, what you can say is you cannot distinguish it from dust in our galaxy. So more refined experiments are going on in the South Pole and also in South America and on, in, in, in high levels, building these probes of the cosmic microwave background radiation that are looking for this primordial gravitational wave signal. Um, it may not be there at a level that they can see. We don't know. It, it, but there are ongoing experiments looking for it. And what you referenced was Brian Keating's work? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Brian Keating was part of that first experiment that thought they'd seen those gravitational waves. He wasn't the PI on it, but he was working on it. Yeah, and he's he's still and he's working on the subsequent experiments that are that are trying to uh, um, refine the measurement. Maybe they'll see it. Maybe they won't. So neutrinos are your favorite particles. That's true. Yes. Yeah. And then there's something called CP violation, and there's something called leptogenesis. And neutrinos, CP violation. Yeah. Wow. It's going to be this. <laughs> Please integrate. Oh, we're them getting all. quite technical. Okay, you read the book for sure. Well, also, what? I'm a math and physics grad from U of T, and the audience tends to be graduate students in oh, physics, okay. math, consciousness, computer science, as well okay. as researchers. In well, that I area. mean, neutrinos, yeah, neutrinos are my favorite particles because they're most elusive particles. And it turns out they may be they may be my favorite particles for another reason. They could be responsible for our existence. Because the big one of the big problems, the problems that got me into cosmology and many other people, the first time particle physics was really applied to cosmology was in the 70s or so, when the, one of the big problems is why do we live in a universe of matter? It may not sound like a problem, but it is if you think about it, because matter and antimatter are largely indistinguishable. And if you have a hot big bang, you'd think you'd create as much antimatter as matter. And if you did, then the matter and antimatter would annihilate, and you wouldn't have anything left over. So there had to have been a slight excess of matter over antimatter early on. How, do, how was that created? We still don't know the answer, but we have ideas for how it might happen. But there are problems with all those ideas. If you create just these particles called baryons, which are the like protons and neutrons, and you make a slight excess of them, then it turns out there are later things that can happen in the in the universe that will erase that excess, or you require a theory that has has parameters that we've already ruled out. What you required, and 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 um, um, Andrei Sakharov, who later won the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, was a British was a brilliant Russian physicist, the father of their atomic bomb, mm -hmm. who in 1967 gave three conditions that are required to have more matter than antimatter. You have to have a departure from thermal equilibrium. Um, you have to have the theory has to allow you to violate what's called baryon number, baryons and antibaryons, so you distinguish protons from antiprotons. It also has to have what's called CP violation or time reversal invariance. Mm -hmm. violation so it has to violate matter and antimatter have to be different in a fundamental way very small way but different so you have baryon number violation but also matter and antimatter can't be quite the same you know they have to violate they have to have some different interactions and you could he showed that if those three things were true if you had a theory that those three things were true 
then you could generate an asymmetry in the early universe that would produce more matter than antimatter. The problem was in 1967, none of those things were true. The standard model of the time didn't have barrier number violation. There was no evidence of any need for out-of-equilibrium processes in the early universe, and it certainly didn't have CP violation. Well, CP violation had just been discovered in 1965. And of course, since then, our theories of going beyond the standard model include all of those things. The grand unified theories have barrier number violation almost automatically. Maybe they have CP violation. But it turns out it's hard to make them work. But what has been recognized is, well, the neutrino sector is largely unconstrained. Because, you know, we've measured CP violation in the, in the observed sector of the rest of particles. But because neutrinos are so elusive, it's been very hard to do experiments on them. Mm-hmm. And it's quite possible, especially if neutrinos uh, are their own antiparticles, then then that violates something called lepton number. It, it, uh, you know, an electron has lepton number one, an anti-electron has lepton number minus one. But if I, it, it turns out, well, if, if neutrinos are, only, are their own antiparticles, and if they have a mass, I should say that, and if they have a mass, that mass will that 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 then that that will that will require you to violate lepton number, namely you could create two neutrinos out of nothing, okay, and and, and instead of a neutrino and an anti neutrino because an anti neutrino and neutrino are the same thing, right? So the 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 lepton sector via neutrinos is very unconstrained, and it's been realized that maybe if there's CP violation in the neutrino sector. If, 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 if not only are neutrinos are on antiparticles, but there's CP violation, then you could have a process in the early universe that's now unconstrained by experiments that would, if you wish, would produce more neutrinos and antineutrinos. Okay? But there, you, in order for that to happen, you probably have to have extra kinds of neutrinos and that we can't see right now. Oh. And, and if that happened, then basically those interactions and the decays of those particles would be fed into the visible sector and end up producing more electrons and anti-electrons and more protons and antiprotons. So basically, you'd produce the asymmetry between particles and antiparticles in the neutrino sector, and that would feed down and eventually give us more matter than antimatter. It's called leptogenesis. And, and, and right now, that's many people think that might be the most attractive possibility for how we end up getting more matter than antimatter in the universe. Two questions. Is there a consensus right now to whether neutrinos have mass and then number Oh, neutrinos have mass because yeah, that, that they've been measured to oscillate between that was a the uh, electron neutrinos, muon neutrinos and tau neutrinos oscillate into one another in a way that wouldn't be um, produce measurable effects if they didn't have mass. We don't know their mass has to be very small and we haven't measured their mass directly. And we don't know exactly which mass, which particle's heavier. All of those things are open questions. But, but we do know that neutrinos have mass. So that's already a significant... And, and in fact, in the standard model, that's not really a, an easy thing to put in. So already that's indications that there's physics beyond the standard model. So that's another thing that's great about neutrinos because they're pointing us in the direction of, of sort of beyond the standard model of particle physics. So the inconsensus is what mechanism? Is it the seesaw mechanism or is it something else? Like we know it has mass, it's just what produces it. Yeah, we just don't know. I, I wouldn't call it lack of consensus. I just say we don't know. But you're right. There's a lot of, I mean, you, it's the same thing, I guess. There's a lot of ideas and a lot of ideas for what, what where neutrinos get their mass and what their masses might be. But right now, we don't even have the experimental data to be able to distinguish between them. And we're building experiments. Like there's a long baseline experiment in, 
in Fermilab that's going to shoot neutrinos to, to a detector in, 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 in um, South Dakota um, in the Homestake mine. And it will be designed to try and look and l- measure the properties of neutrinos and masses and see if we can answer these questions. Measure CP violation, among other things. Yeah. And if I heard correctly, I believe you said that in order for leptogenesis to occur, there has to be other kinds of neutrinos that we don't currently observe. And are you referring to right-handed or are you referring to like new I'm, generations? I'm referring to right-handed neutrinos. Yeah, heavier right-handed neutrinos. Generally, that's the case, yeah. And then those can feed down into, into normal because they're unstable. And they'll decay and produce normal matter, etc. As far as I recall, neutrinos propagate as mass eigenstates, but they're detected as flavor eigenstates. You know, that's the reason. That's the reason. Yes, but that's the reason they oscillate, because because um, because the mass eigenstates are not the weak eigenstates, if, if you want. And so part of so the part of the particle that's propagating is not an eigenstate of of, mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. label in electron muon or tau yeah, yeah and so the massive particle that propagates but it periodically looks more like an electron neutrino and then at other times like a tau neutrino and or whatever or muon neutrino would an analogy for the audience be like we don't know if it's spin up or spin down you measure it and then it becomes one or no is that a poor analogy well uh, it is that the if you want to think of it it's not a bad analogy. It turns out the weak eigenstate, the thing we label as an electron neutrino, is a is a superposition of mass eigenstates. So it's like saying that a particle that's in that spin half is in a superposition of spin up and spin down, mm-hmm. or spin up and spin sideways, or whatever you want to do, call it. So it's, it's a in a quantum superposition of two different states. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you measure, and it's fine to say that. Sometimes you measure it, and you measure. You know, it's like it's like um, if if you're in a, a superposition of a spin up and spin down, if the particle's oscillating, let's say in a magnetic field, sometimes you'll measure it spin sideways, and sometimes you'll measure it spin up, and this is somewhat similar to that. Sometimes, as the particle's propagating, you'll measure it and you say, "Oh, it's an electron neutrino," and other times you'll measure it and say, "No, it's a muon neutrino." So it's not that bad an analogy. It's the same. It, it's saying that because the mass eigenstates aren't the weak eigenstates. You, the, the, another way of saying that is the weak eigenstates, the flavor eigenstates, are linear superpositions of the mass eigenstates, but that also implies that the mass eigenstates are linear superpositions of the flavor eigenstates. So it's not like you can say, okay, well, which one is more fundamental? It's like you can draw your bases in any way. So is the Well, flavor- I mean, one, uh, well, I mean, yeah. Well, you don't, I mean, mass is... Energy is fundamental in terms of propagating in space and time, energy and momentum. So they determine the states that propagate. The mass eigenstates are the ones that propagate. Sorry um, if this is a foolish question. I just don't know. No, I'm no, curious. no, no. No, so, but the but point is, it, it's kind of, it would be arbitrary if it weren't for the fact that we measure, that the rest of the particles, the, the other particles we measure, like electrons and muons and stuff, are not, are in, that their mass eigenstates are weak eigenstates. And so that it's they're good labels for all the other particles that we measure, the ones that make us up, electrons and protons. The la- they're 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 labels because they have electric charge. Those are good labels, but the le- neutrino is neutral, and so the la- what the label we give it is somewhat arbitrary for it. Okay, now you have studied dark energy and dark matter plenty, so mm-hmm. there's some people that say, well, it's not matter; it's a modified gravity. What do you make of that? There's also something called well, teleparallel gravities. 
Well, there's lots of ideas. I don't know. Every week there's a new proposal. The simplest proposal is that it's the energy of empty space. Oh, for dark energy. What about for dark matter? Dark matter, it's not, it, it's not anywhere near as exotic. It's just a new kind of elementary particle and the standard model. And every theory that goes beyond the standard model predicts a host of such particles, whether they're WIMPs or supersymmetric particles or axions. It, you, you, can't, you can't create a model that goes beyond the standard model. Well, maybe you could, but it's very hard to do without dark matter candidates. So that's not a very, it's, as my friend Frank Wilczek used to say, it's the most radically conservative assumption, mm-hmm. which is what you do in physics, right? It's, it's, much more, it's much more conservative to say there's a new kind of elementary particle, since we expect there will be, than to say that gravity, if one of the fundamental forces in nature, somehow gets modified in exactly the right way on the scale of galaxies to produce the weird effects that we see. That's why I find, I find dark matter, the particle explanation for dark matter to be far more compelling theoretically and observationally than anything else. Okay, now let's talk about infinities briefly. So there's this phrase that renormalization is a dippy process from Feynman. And then there's... Yeah, well, Feynman really didn't understand it. He won the Nobel Prize for it, but he never really understood it. So since the um, 70s, there's like the Wilson group, which says... Yeah that it's a reflection of our nescience, like our ignorance about the fundamental laws. But still to this day, some people think of renormalization, even some physicists, I was speaking to one off air, and he said, no, 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 it's still sweeping infinities under the rug. So what is your view? No, no, no. Look, look, the point, the, my view is that w- the mistake of thinking of infinities is the mistake of thinking that any theory is good at all scales. We used to think of like electromagnetism as a, th- as a theory of nature, but it, but and it's true for all scales. But it's not true for all scales. We know, in fact, that a small enough scale, it, it electromagnetism unifies with a weak interaction. So so if you take your theories and you do your integrals up to infinity, you're assuming the theory uh, works at a scale where it may not work. So it's making vast assumptions about what happens at scales you can't measure. It turns out that the sensible theories that we can measure at low energies are ones that are insensitive. To the, to the new physics that is an inevitably going to happen at those high scales. And renormalization is just a way of separating out what we can measure and know from the, from the physics that, that, that is irrelevant at low scales. It's relevant, but it's suppressed by powers of, 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 of very large masses. Any new physics that comes in has an effect that goes like 1 over m, the mass scale at which it comes in. And so renormalization is just a way of basically systematically separating out those higher order effects that are irrelevant. And if you and and if there are no theories, you can take that mass to infinity. Mm-hmm. But and renormalizable theories are theories that make sense if you take that mass to infinity. If you take that the scale of any any new physics to infinity. Mm-hmm. If they weren't, if, if they were sensitive to high energy physics scales, then they wouldn't be renormalizable. But then they wouldn't be the theories we see anyway, because they, we, they, it would depend on new effects. So it's nothing. There's n- the whole notion of associating with infinities is just because we don't know what the physics is. So we say, well, if it were infinitely big, you know, how can we dissociate that from the level of the physics we measure? But it's really just equivalent to the statement, and this is Wilson's recognition that that those new theories at very high scales are irrelevant to understanding the physics at scales we see, but, 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 this, but the theories evolve with scale. And eventually that high scale physics will be important. And in fact, the physics that you can't always, that some of the physics you can't always see will, will 
change the way in, in, in which those theories change with scale. Yeah. In fact, one of the ways we look for new physics at the Large Hadron Collider is to is to look to see if the if the if the strength of the weak and electromagnetic forces are scaling as you think they would. If they're not, then it may apply new virtual heavy particles that are contributing to the way those forces are behaving, and it would be a signature of new physics. So it's not a matter of sweeping infinities under the rug. It it is if you do the mathematics, but physically, what you're just saying is. I don't know what the new physics is, and and I'm I'm, I'm going to isolate that physics that I don't know, and and uh, define a theory that works at this at, that's defined and works at this scale and gives all the relevant answers at this scale. At another scale, the theory may change. So we really realize there are no fundamental theories in nature. All physical theories evolve. That is, unless you get to string theory, and and then the, and and people have argued that then that evolution disappears and you have truly a theory that's true at all scales. But we don't know if that's the case or not. I don't want to keep you for too much longer as there's a hurricane that's impending. And yeah. I would like to speak to you again. Yeah, we, we good. This is, this is certainly a fun and detailed conversation that's more detailed than I usually get to do online. Yeah, so you mentioned that the Higgs field is like a Bose-Einstein condensate. Now, I don't know if you meant that poetically or literally, well, no, it is. It is a. It is a condensate. So, a, a, as you, as you know, and maybe your listeners know that in that no two fermions can exist in the same state. But you have bosons, particles with zero spin or spin one. They can condense. They all want to be in the same state. And when they're in the same state coherently, it looks like a classical field. That's why we can measure electric fields because photons can exist coherently in the same state. Mm-hmm. Enough of them. Enough quantum particles add up so they the effect looks classical. Well, in a, it, the Higgs field is a condensate of of particles of Higgs particles. Yes, and um, and that exists in empty space. It's it's so it's like a black it's like a background field. It's like a background electric field. Mm-hmm. It's just we can't measure it as a f- electric field. We can't measure it directly, but the way we can measure it is by hitting it really hard with particles, and then we knock other particles out, and that's basically what we do with at the Large Hadron Collider. Um, and so so the Higgs field is really a Bose condensate of particles, a Bose-Einstein condensate of particles. It's a background field that's made of a coherent superposition, superposition of many, many quanta of the Higgs field, which are Higgs particles. Well, Professor, you got to get going, and I could speak to you for another three hours, maybe okay. longer. Maybe we'll speak again. We'll yeah, speak again. yeah, I would love to. And so why don't you tell the audience, what are you working on next? Are you writing another book? I am I am probably writing another book. I, ju- I just finished some work on, on ways to maybe test ideas of quantum gravity in the laboratory by using fluids. So that was, we have a paper that just came out in, in physics, uh, in, in nature physics that's not yet appeared in print. But it's just been, it's just uh, been accepted and appeared online. Well, congratulations. Uh, thank you. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm writing a new book, but it's probably not going to be a science book of the type that that you've, you're used to. There's a number of possibilities. The fiction? Well, fiction is one of the possibilities. Probably not for this book, but there will be a fiction book coming out. This book will either be uh, I, I'm I've started because enough people have asked me to write a scientific memoir to write a scientific memoir, so I've started it. We'll see how long my patience lasts. Uh-huh. Because I've known many, many, many interesting scientists and other people over the years and had and and uh and 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 my own experience as a scientist some people think it's worth writing about we'll see i have to i had to be had my arm twisted but we'll see for those who are watching 
I'm holding up the book called The Edge of Knowledge. That's Lawrence Krauss's recent book. Actually, this year, a couple months ago, it just came, came out. out. Yeah, it just came out in May in the, in yeah. the U.S. That's right. The link to that will be in the description. Thank you so much for spending your time with me during this tumultuous <laughs> weather. Hopefully, it'll all be much ado about nothing. And, and since I'm a big fan of nothing, I'm going to hope for that. Okay. Take okay. care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you have questions for Lawrence Krauss, then leave them below in the format query by writing the word query with a colon and then your question. The podcast is now concluded. Thank you for watching. If you haven't subscribed or clicked that like button, now would be a great time to do so as each subscribe and like helps YouTube push this content to more people. You should also know that there's a remarkably active Discord and subreddit for Theories of Everything where people explicate toes, disagree respectfully about theories, and build as a community our own toes. Links to both are in the description. Also, I recently found out that external links count plenty toward the algorithm, which means that when you share on Twitter, on Facebook, on Reddit, etc., it shows YouTube that people are talking about this outside of YouTube, which in turn greatly aids the distribution on YouTube as well. Last but not least, you should know that this podcast is on iTunes, it's on Spotify, it's on every one of the audio platforms. Just type in theories of everything and you'll find it. Often I gain from re-watching lectures and podcasts, and I read that in the comments, hey, Toll listeners also gain from replaying. So how about instead re-listening on those platforms? iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whichever podcast catcher you use. If you'd like to support more conversations like this, then do consider visiting patreon.com slash and donating with whatever you like. Again, it's support from the sponsors and you that allow me to work on Toe full-time. You get early access to ad-free audio episodes there as well. For instance, this episode was released a few days earlier. Every dollar helps far more than you think. Either way, your viewership is generosity enough.